Uh, excited to be in God's Word this morning and continuing in our series in Acts. You can actually start turning uh, there as I'm talking, but we're going to be a uh, little bit in Acts 4, just the last section that John was touching on, and then primarily in Acts 5 here uh, this morning. And I think it's important, just as we're starting this, to clarify that in our understanding of God's character, I'd suggest that there are certain aspects of His character that are more palatable or more uh, valued or appreciated by human beings than others. Let me explain. So some of us would say, man, I, I really appreciate that he's loving. I really appreciate that he's long-suffering. I really appreciate that he's patient. I, I, all these aspects of his character we appreciate, but when I say the word disciplinarian, is that a word that we appreciate about his character? A disciplinarian, that's usually not something that we associate with a, a valued characteristic in somebody, but if we think about what's compelling it, maybe our mindset, our mindset might change a little bit. I, I love this passage that explains to us in Hebrews. It says in Hebrews 12:5, "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord." nor be weary when reproved by him. Listen to this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons." pointing to the fact that as God's kids, as His children, one of the expectations in our life is that we will be disciplined for our own betterment. I don't know if any of you grew up in a family where you were uh, received some discipline, usually on the, the rear end of the, the body. Any, anybody grew up in a pretty uh, strict household? I, I'd say that at my household, they ran a pretty tight ship. My, my dad, you definitely knew you did not have a directive that you ignored. Like You've definitely paid attention. I remember my mom growing up on certain occasions when I'd do something dumb, she would say, well, I'm not going to discipline you. We're going to wait until your father gets home. Those were like the most dreaded words possible. You're like, no, just, mom, just have at it, man. Get, get me good. You know, like just anything but making me, making me wait for the discipline of my father. But if you think about it, it's what shapes our character probably the most. There's certain lessons that don't sink in without some degree of discomfort, right? There's certain lessons that just don't take root without some de degree of discomfort, and we're going to see that this morning in our text, that the, the, some of the, the lessons, it's not, a, it, it's an act of a loving father, but there's certain lessons that don't sink in without some, some, some firm, with some, uh, some intentional discipline. Our story this morning kind of is coupled between two positive reports in the church. So we just finished in John's section last week, a very positive report of the church. We have this story this morning, and then we have another positive story. It's, for me, it's a good reminder that there's no such thing as a perfect church. In fact, tell your neighbor right now, there's no such thing as a perfect church. That's important for all of us. Go ahead, say it. 
It's important for us to get that. They made it for about a month before they blew it, before they needed discipline. And then we're going to see that discipline here this morning. And I'd suggest a lot of great lessons, hard lessons from this text. Let me pray before we explore that. God, thank you for this chance to be together and a chance to better understand you and what compels what you do. I love that your word says that it's love that compels your discipline. I pray that you'd grow us in our understanding and that we would be mature enough to understand that it's necessary part of our development. God, I pray that you teach us through this text in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I was going to say earlier when I was talking about my dad, I, I never wondered in the back of my mind, I knew that it was something I needed though. Didn't, isn't that what it's true with you as well? Like you're like, ah, I, I know this is rough, but I definitely need it. Well, let's look at the, at the positive, the beautiful backdrop is what I titled this section uh, that you see before the dark part of the story this morning. So back in chapter 4, verse 34 through 37, says this, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is, the, this is the backdrop that I was talking about. We're introduced to a positive or a, a generous Joe, if you will, what was happening. I, I love that it says this, that there wasn't a single need among them. If you remember the last couple of weeks as it gave accounts of how many people, this is the early church, and there's about 10,000 people that make up this early church and you imagine to be able to say out of those 10,000 people, literally no needs among them. How in the world is that possible? You see, what was happening is that people that had extra wealth were cashing in their resources, their land. And so this extravagant generosity was, being, it was happening. So they weren't just bold in their witness. They were also bold with their resources. So they're taking the money of land being sold or, or, or homes or property, and they're laying it at the disciples' feet, and you see it there, that they're, they're laying it there to be distributed as was needed. This was, in, I want to be clear on this, and we'll get to it a little bit later, this was a voluntary choice to sell things to meet needs. It wasn't something that was told, it was never taught that this was something that was required of the early church. It was literally an outflow of what the Holy Spirit was doing in folks' lives. And you think about that, man, when the, the Spirit has reigned in control of our lives, it seems like the grip that we have on our own things starts to loosen. Our hands all of a sudden become more generous. I uh, play basketball with a group of guys uh, on uh, usually on Saturday mornings over at uh, Oaks. There's some guys, and I've gotten to be friends with some of them. And yesterday, I had one of the guys, uh, kind of an older uh, brother, he's also a believer, came up to me, and he's like, hey, Scott, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to bless the, the, the church, your, your church you uh, lead with, with a little something. I'm like, great, man, that'd be awesome. Guy, he's like, yeah, I came upon some money this week, and I just wanted to pass some on. 
gave me a check for $10,000 for the church. I was like, hey, that's cool. <laughs> I'm glad I play basketball at Oaks. And, and, so, and, and, and so I was thinking about that. I was just like, man, when God's got a hold of somebody's heart, all of a sudden, the release starts to happen. It's one of the evidences in our lives. And here we're introduced to somebody that clearly God has a hold of. His name is Joseph. I can call him Joe if you want. Whatever nickname. They actually gave him a nickname. You see what his nickname is? Barnabas. That's what he's known for the rest of the, uh, in the rest of the New Testament. And you see what that nickname means. Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement, or other words, one who, another uh, description would be one who soothes, one who soothes. It's like, that's pretty sweet. So this guy is just a tangible example of the trend that was happening there where people are are releasing things, bringing it to the apostles' feet, and blessing others. And he gets a nickname, which is a kind of a cool thing, but I wonder if that's not what prompted the remainder of our story, where I would suggest likely some jealousy set in amongst others. Like, look at, look at Barnabas. Look at Joe, man. He got a new name. Everybody's cheering about, about what he's done. Let's think of how we can get in on a little bit of that action. Now we're jumping to chapter 5, verse 1. We're introduced to two other characters. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Let's pause there for a moment for a little explanation. I was wondering and maybe if you think about this, what that conversation would have looked like between husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. I almost wonder if maybe this started as a, a noble thought. They're like, hey, we've got this extra land. It was passed down from our grandparents, and we don't u- necessarily use it. I know there's still some needs that we can maybe help meet. We'll sell this. And But I think we need to hang on to a little bit of it to kind of keep our nest egg, keep our financial security in place. And so they made the choice together to keep a portion of land. Now, question for you. Do you think if they came to that conclusion, they, they, they sold the land and they're like, hey, we're going to give a portion to the church and we're going to keep some to, just kind of as a nest egg. Do you think that would have been frowned upon by God? Would, would God have been frustrated with that? I would suggest absolutely not. That, that's where they were at at that point in their life. That's where they were, they're at. There's a portion that they're able to give. They're willing to give. That's where their heart was at. If you think about it, God's just interested in a cheerful giver. He wants to see us like, man, I want to give this for literally where I'm at personally in my walk with Christ. I remember in high school, I had a, I've always been a, a car fan, big car guy, and there's a season where it was real popular to have stereos that were excessively loud. I think still, still some teens do that with the goal of making sure that the person driving next to you could hear everything you were playing. And so I, I had gotten some speakers for my car, but then somebody told me, man, you're not getting the most out of those speakers. You need a, Chad, what do I need? 
amplifier. Of course, you got to amplify those speakers to get the very maximum output. I'm like, man, I got to save for this amplifier. So I'm saving, saving, saving. Well, at the exact same time at our church, they were making some kind of an appeal for some kind of project that needed resources. I remember it was like this inner tug of war. I'm like, oh, but I need the amplifier for the people next to me are going to hear my car. Like, I, I, I need that. I need. And so finally, I caved in at the bidding of the Holy Spirit, soul, gave the money towards the church. Yes, that's the one noble act of my youth. Uh, and so, uh, but I remember in the middle of that, I'm pretty sure God wasn't like, well, why didn't you sell the car too? Why didn't, you, why didn't you cash in that too and give that to? Like, no. He, that's, he was working on that specific area. He's okay with us being in process with our generosity. That's not the problem. Where they turned the corner was when they came up with this plan, and you see that she knew about it. This was something they discussed. This plan that they would give as if they were giving all of the money but then keeping some for themselves. So in other words, they wanted the benefits of looking like they were extremely generous, like guys like Barnabas, the soother. Like they, 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 they wanted to have the look without any of the sacrifice. Basically, they wanted credit for sacrificial giving without having to trust God to provide for their future. They wanted the credit. They wanted to look as if they were further along than they actually were spiritually. They, they wanted to pre, put, really just putting on a show. What do we, what do we call that? What's the, the description of that, the word that we use for that person putting on a show? Starts with an H, ends with an it. Hypocrite. Yes, that's it. A, a hypocrite. The hypocrite is the, the, a person that's putting on a display. I like this definition of hypocrisy. Pretense of moral character that one does not possess. Looking like they're a part of the ranks of the spiritually elite, but really personally behind the scenes, not quite there. Think about that. If you think about that, that's really not just a, a one-time event or problem within the church. I'd suggest that that's a, a, a tug that all of us feel to some degree, to have a presentation of, of being further along than we actually are. Ananias was ready for a, a he's like, I, I want a nickname. I, wanna, I, want, I want people to recognize my, my, my spiritual prowess here. And you see, I thought it was interesting, Ananias, his name actually means mercy, mercy. He was ready to trade in his name way too soon for a new one. I think it's interesting if you think about it. We transition from sinners acknowledging our need for mercy and salvation to saints who want to look like we have it all together. We should be content staying in the with the name mercy because it's kind of ironic because he's not about to see a whole lot of mercy based on his decision. So what happens when we put forth this front of being further along spiritually than we actually are, then in that particular area that we're trying to come across as something else, we're never going to grow and develop if we're putting on a front as if we've arrived. See, this was compelled, and you see it in the text. Why did, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Satan's known as the father of 
lies, and so he's putting this appeal, but that doesn't take away personal responsibility. Still, Ananias and Sapphira made this choice. It was compelled, driven from their heart, and you see who they're lying against, lying against the Holy Spirit. Continues in verse 4 with this confrontation. This is what Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Talking about the land. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Pretty intense scene there. Starts with, with uh, confrontation, Peter uh, directing or, or bringing, making some really valid points, probably for him, but also for the listeners around him. Look at the questions that he asked. It says, before you sold it, it remained your own. In other words, you had no obligation. You didn't have to sell this and do anything. It was your land to decide what to do with. Why did you have to do this? What, what was the motivation? And he says, and then after you sold it, it's still at what? Your disposal. In other words, you had complete freedom to decide what to do with it. If you were going to keep it, that's fine. If the Lord's moving in you to give it, that's great too. Either way, he wants the heart to be honest before God because you're only lying to God. You see, he points to that directly there. I loved it when we were doing our last project here at the church, pretty big one. If you're newer here, you might not be aware of that, but we did kind of a remodel here. We called it Refresh, and we did some updates. Those of you that have been around for a while were part of that. And I remember when we were first kind of coming up with a plan for that as an elder board, we had gotten some different counsel from different people that said, man, they have these great organizations that come in and can help you with fundraising. You should, you should get one of those and kind of strategize on how best to uh, get people to give their maximum amount of, uh, of gifts towards this. I'm like, I don't really want to do that. And instead, we as a board, we concluded, you know what, we're going to do a simple thing. We're going to ask the church to pray about it. And if they feel led to give, give. And if they don't feel led to give, don't give. Isn't that a great plan? Like that, I was like, you know, that, I think that's a plan that actually is biblical. It's the same idea that he's saying. It's at pe- people's disposal. If he wants to move in you to give something, he'll move accordingly if they're responsive to the Spirit. But if you think about it, This stemmed out of a man that was likely going back to his roots. He's coming out of Judaism that was a a belief system that was based completely on merit, completely on doing good works and displaying them. You think about the culture that he's in that we're all about putting on a display of looking maybe further along than they actually are. So that's the backdrop. He's just being having a tug to go back to likely all he had ever known and seen. But Peter's saying, man, not in this new community. This new community, we're doing things differently. This is, this is, a, this is a serious business. We're not calling people to put on a front or to live fake. And I was like, man, that's, that's the kind of community 
I want to be a part of. Not the kind of community you want to be a part of. Not, not one that's a hypocrite, but one that's, that's driven by authenticity to say, hey, I'm not quite where I want to be, but I'm also not where I was 12 months ago. I'm definitely not where I was five years ago. I don't even recognize me 10 years ago, not just the bald thing. But you don't, you, you, there's a progression, there's a change that's a part of the life of a, of a believer. But here's the interesting thing. One of the things that is debated about this is whether Ananias and Sapphira were actually believers. Some would suggest not, some would, would suggest so based on the severity of the discipline. Is, because isn't there a part of you when you read this and you're like, man, that was a pretty intense discipline. But he's listed and it's under the account of the full, in Acts 4.32, they're talking about the full number of believers. He's talking about lying to the Holy Spirit. So there, I would suggest there's a lot of evidence that he literally, they were part of the, the household of faith. And other parts of Scripture point to instances where people are disciplined to the point of death. I know that's not a real popular uh, thing to talk about in church. I wanted to point to a couple different thoughts. It's even when we talk about the taking communion seriously. This is found in 1 Corinthians 11, if we could get that on the screen there. It talks about taking communion in an unworthy manner. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Listen to this line. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Huh. It's almost like one of those passages that you blaze past to get to the next one because you're like, that couldn't be saying what it's actually saying, that God disciplines His kids. This is talking about the, the body of Christ there. He's challenging. And then another one that I wanted to point to, 1 John 5, 16, says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, again, brother, point, referring to a follower, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. See, God is okay with disciplining His kids in a pretty firm manner if we're really understanding what Scripture teaches about that. He's okay with taking us off the chessboard, if you will. Hey, they're not really making a whole lot of moves right now. I'll bring them home. That's not the worst thing. That's, that's not the most miserable thing that could happen. But I want to make sure, I'm talking in the perspective of God, I want to make sure nothing hinders people from coming into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want there to be any obstacle that's driven by a couple knucklehead believers and what does, what's the most common thing as you're talking to people that people say why they don't like church? Man, I, I just don't like the hypocrites, right? The hypocrisy. So he's setting a standard early on to protect his bride, saying, man, this is not going to be tolerated. And it's interesting how sometimes a severe discipline can set the tone to protect others from not making the same exa exact mistake. Notice in the text what it says in that section there. It says, And great fear came upon all who heard it. Fear, fear can be a healthy tool in discipline. 
was talking a little bit ago about uh, my dad and kind of setting the, the tone for our house for obedience. And one of the things that he had, and I think I'd suggest really good dads have this, is he had the look. Any dads or moms here have that, that, that look? It's, not, it's the look that says, if you don't obey, you're going to have a problem here. There's going to be a consequence on the other side. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Do, do any of you? Any of you actually practice this look in the mirror before? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but I, I'm convinced my dad did. In fact, after the, he was there on Thursday night, he said, you know, I'm, I'm willing to offer a workshop on that if the church is interested. And so, uh, but th- this look does what? It sends the message that discipline is right on the other side of that look. You think about that. For this early church, they're just like, all of a sudden, can you imagine how that story would have blazed through that community of followers? Whoa, God takes this really seriously. He doesn't like the whole idea of hypocrisy. You imagine how much was protected in that early church because of that stern, strong example. Example has two parts to it, though. Take a look at the second part, Act 2, if you will. After an interval, this is verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things." So the story keeps getting even more intense. Now the the wife, this is about three hours later, and you see there that she didn't know what had happened. Can you imagine as she's walking in and and people are like, did you guys tell her? I'm not telling her. Are you going to tell her? No way. I'm not telling her. Let Peter tell her. So Peter gives the opportunity. If you think about this, this is really an act of mercy and grace being extended to Sapphira. Sapphira means beautiful, like the sapphire stone. Sapphire giving this beautiful opportunity for her to do what? Come clean, right? This was, this was a chance for her to be like, man, I blew it. My, my knucklehead husband came up with this plan, and I shouldn't have agreed to it, but we did, and so I'm sorry. We should have. Do you think there would have been a different outcome with that? Do you, do you think if she would have literally come clean and said, you know what, man, I, I'm so sorry, I've sinned against God, do you, do you think they would have been dragging her out to be placed by her husband? Absolutely not. One, one this is a lesson for, for wives. You don't, if you're, just because you have a knucklehead husband doing something goofy doesn't mean you have to do it too. So there's the permission to, to not follow suit. But, but, but here, the opportunity was there before her but she chose to dig in her heels and continue to lie in their sin. And that's the same with us. God's just like, man, I, I'm waiting there with open arms, waiting to forgive, waiting to redirect. But why are you testing? Look at what he says there. Why do you test the spirit of the Lord? 
find it interesting in this section, it literally refers to testing God, testing uh, the, the Holy Spirit, and testing the Lord. So literally all three uh, components of the Trinity covered in one text, that's who you're sinning against is the point that he's making clear. He says, why are you testing the Spirit of the Lord? In other words, how are they testing? Coming to the conclusion by their actions saying, well, if we do this, no one's going to find out and nothing's going to happen to us. That, that's the test. They're saying, yeah, I don't think God's going to do anything. Were they right in that? Were they, were they right in that test? It's a pretty short-lived test, I would suggest. She, she discovered that, ah, oh, I can't really test the Lord in this. That's, that's not going real well. So she literally drops dead right there in front of them. I wonder if Peter knew that's how the story was going to play out. You get the sense with, with Sapphira that he actually knew, but I wonder with Ananias if that was as much of a, a shock to him as it was to the bystanders, if it was a gulp moment. Now he's seeing her lie too, and he's like, I'm pretty confident it's going to happen to you too. You're, you're not going to walk out of here. This isn't going to go well for you. You see, this, this was a difficult lesson for the church. Don't come to the conclusion that God, every single time somebody sins, he's smiting them or taking them out. This is a unique example to make a stern point about how God feels about hypocrisy. It's not like the New Testament is jammed full with people dropping dead after their sin. That's not the point here. It's that God takes his bride seriously. He takes sin seriously. He takes repentance seriously. I'd suggest I wanted to leave us with this, just a couple of uh, just practical safeguards, if you will, guardrails for hypocrisy. A couple thoughts just as we wrap up. A couple things that I was thinking about. What are, how, how do you protect from becoming a hypocrite? Especially as it relates, I think it's interesting that this one relates actually to, to resources. I think that's one of the things that has the greatest potential to get a grip on us if we're real honest with ourselves. One of the things I jotted down just as a, as a guardrail, I wrote down, check your house. Check your house. And what I mean by that, there's a pastor that I grew up under. He said, make sure that there's nothing in your house that is supposed to be in his house. Tracking with me? Make sure there's nothing in your house. First off, my daughters a couple weeks ago, they, they came home and they all of a sudden had this big lobster-looking raft. You might remember that from uh, playing uh, at VBS this summer. And I was like, where'd you guys get that? They're like, oh, it's done from camp this summer. We're, we're, they were done with it. We thought we could use it at our, at our house. I go, uh-uh, that goes right back in the truck, back to the church. So there's the physical part of this. If you have something you've stolen from the church, replace it, okay? Maybe that doesn't apply for all of you. But the figurative idea, maybe it does, I don't know, based on your laughter. Uh, but the figurative idea of that is, man, giving is intended to be a process that you work through with God. And you come to some conclusions about what, what God's placed on your heart to give. And whatever he's placed on your heart to give to the local church and the ministry of, of the church, man, make sure it's not in your house. Make sure it's in his house. You see what I'm saying there? 
So that's, that's one thing is just go, put in the spiritual effort to go through that process with the Lord. Lord, what do you, what do you intend? Man, Scripture is pretty clear on the, the idea and principle of a tithe throughout. Man, what's, what's it look like to, to give generously? What does that look like? Wrestle through that with God so you can be like, man, I'm con- God's, God's convicted me to give this much, and that's what I'm doing, and I can put my head on the pillow with no regrets or no second-guessing myself. That's one of the safety guardrails, I would suggest. Another one, repent as you see it. Repent as you see it. You might jot this down in your notes. Consistent repentance heightens awareness. Consistent repentance heightens awareness. You see, when we're literally paying attention to hypocrisy in our life, when we notice and we start calling it out, Man, that's how you start to rid it in your life. When you start calling it, confessing it for what it is, God's like, man, now I have something to work with. You start doing that, and you're like, oh, God, I, was, I, was, I shouldn't have done that. Man, can you imagine if, if he would have said, uh, instead, he should have said, man, I see, God, my, this tug, at, this is Ananias, I see this tug towards trying to be like Barnabas. God, I pray that you grow my, my heart so I become more of a Barnabas. I don't pretend to be a Barnabas. That's what I want to be. This confession process raises awareness of hypocrisy in our life. And if that's not good enough, get rallying other people. This next one, seek accountability. Rallying other people to do the same thing in your life is also extremely helpful. To have some kind of accountability. To have people in your life that you're close enough with that will say, man, I'm seeing you say one thing, but I'm also seeing some inconsistency there. there, there, there there's, there's some hypocrisy there. Man, do you, if, if you don't have that person in your life, fight for it. It's super easy to find plenty of people that will sit down and have chips and guac with you and watch a game, but it's, it takes intentional effort to foster relationships where people will call you out in your junk. That's a good thing. That's a, that's a healthy thing. Sometimes it's your, your spouse. What if some of you that are married in your room just said, hey, you know what? Just because the pastor said this, I'm giving you permission to call me out when you see hypocrisy in my life. Whew. What if, what if some of us, what about, what about this? What if you with children said that to your kids? Hey, I'm trying to live a, I'm trying to live a life where there's consistency between what I say and what I do, if you start to see that not happening, man, here's permission to, to call me out on that. Can you imagine? Chase, you want to do that? He's grinning up here like crazy. And so, so anyway, a couple practical ideas just in, in putting up a guardrails, if you will. A difficult lesson by a father that loves his children enough to discipline us. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this text, and as much as we'd like to cruise quickly past sections of Scripture like this, I thank you that you include them in there so we're not shocked and surprised when you take the purity of your bride seriously, that you elevate authenticity, that you don't tolerate putting on a front, that that's not how it's going to work in your community and with your bride. I love that you don't call us to be perfect, but you call us to be real, to be transparent. Who are we fooling anyway, God? 
pray that you'd grow each of us up individually. I, bro- cr- I pray that you'd grow us up collectively in this area of hypocrisy, that we would be known as a people, as a church that are authentic and real and genuine about where we're at, not content with where we're at to, to stay there, but dependent on your spirit to move us along, not putting on a pretense of something we're not, God. Thank you for your grace and your patience with us as we navigate through all of this, God. I pray that we grow and be stretched through this section of scripture. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. And I believe that's the antidote for hypocrisy. Just keep running to his arms, right? His arms of grace. Praise God for his word this morning. I pray that you have a wonderful Sunday. God bless you.